Biographical Bites from Bala, number 8, from May 2022. Lauren Isley, every writer's writer, and every human's human. Welcome to the eighth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is a historic and active cemetery in Bala Kenwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill, in Philadelphia. It is more than twice as big as Laurel Hill and has a totally different feel, a strikingly different population. But like Laurel Hill, it is open 365 days a year, now in the summer months from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is to just duck in while you're walking the Kinwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. Our eighth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is from mid-May 2022, and I am going to tell you about Lauren Isley, a hobo turned researcher and professor who wrote some of the most stirring nature essays of the mid-20th century. He found his final resting spot at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Lauren Corey Isley. 1907-1977. Every writer's writer and every human's human. One way to know how a man or woman has affected the lives of others is to read obituaries written by people who never met them. When anthropologist, educator, philosopher, museum curator, poet, and especially nature writer Lauren Isley died in 1977, there was an outpouring of grief across the country. His Philadelphia Inquirer obituary said, His death deprives Philadelphia and the world of a distinguished human whose perceptions of humanity and its roles in the scheme of nature enrich the lives of millions. In many ways, he was a man ahead of his times. In a larger sense, he was a man for all time. From the Capital Times of Madison, Wisconsin, it is strange how you can feel a sadness for a being you never met, never listened to, never talked to. Yet, of course, anyone who ever read Lauren Isley did meet him, did listen to him, did talk to him. Lauren Isley's body has gone back into the ground that he knew better than most. Thank God the rest of him still lives and still teaches better than most. From the Rochester, New York Democrat and Chronicle, 
I feel as though I've lost a friend, and indeed I have, though I never met him except through his writings. Lauren Isley was one of those good companions you tend to carry close to you through life. In a world that so often seems to lose its bearings, he was a reassuring star for fixing on, a gentle, sensitive soul who was as much artist as anthropologist. He understood that no matter how many veils we lift, there's always another one concealing the origins of life. Perhaps my favorite comment came from syndicated newspaper columnist Harriet Van Horn. A friend I never knew died last week. A man I loved and admired and felt kinship with, though my closest link with him was an occasional note of thanks when I chanced to mention one of his books. By way of lighting a candle, I have been rereading those books. And I am sorry beyond all telling that I never met Professor Lauren Isley. On trains and planes, in the long watches of the night, I have read and reread The Immense Journey, The Night Country, and All the Strange Hours. Like Blake, he saw the world in a grain of sand. He wrote with grace and wit about matters that usually evoke neither. And author Ray Bradbury waited a few months before publishing his tribute when he reviewed Isley's last book, Another Kind of Autumn. A friend I met only once died a few weeks ago. There is a large hole where he vanished. Lauren Isley is the name of the friend met only once, a shy man seemingly unaware of his genius. His earliest essays, 30 years ago in Harper's, struck an awe into me that never stopped. You must forgive the personal note here, but no matter who wrote this review, it would be personal. We all felt that Isley was our personal property. He was that kind of man, that kind of writer, that kind of poet. Bradbury gives his review of the book and then finishes by listing several of Isley's other writings. He said, there is no better book amongst these. They are all best. Get one. Get all. Meet and celebrate and grieve for this friend that you never met, but will know to the end of your life and who will survive beyond the time of your children. Now, it is obviously a challenge to do a single podcast about a man who accomplished so much and was loved by so many. Benjamin Franklin, professor of anthropology and history of science, curator of the early man section at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. He received 36 honorary degrees over a period of 20 years and was the most honored member of the University of Pennsylvania faculty since Benjamin Franklin fellow of many distinguished professional societies, including the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the National Institute of Arts and Letters, and the American Philosophical Society. More than a dozen books of nature writing and four books of poetry. Several of his essays are considered classics and still taught today. I felt that in addition to narrating his life, I needed to share with you some of his work, and I had to whittle it down 
to three lengthy excerpts as I worked through his biography. His autobiography is entitled, All the Strange Hours, The Excavation of a Life. It's divided into three sections. The first is called Days of a Drifter. Lauren Corey Isley was born in Lincoln, Nebraska to a hard-working father and a deaf mother who suffered from mental illness. Isley recalls growing up as, quote, childhood experiences as a sickly afterthought weighed down by the loveless union of his parents. They lived on the outskirts of town where they intentionally isolated from others. His father, Clyde, was a hardware salesman who worked long hours for little pay. But he had been an amateur Shakespearean actor, and he gave his son a love for beautiful language and writing. His mother, Daisy Corey, known for her flamboyant hats and razor-sharp tongue, had lost her hearing as a child, and sometimes exhibited irrational and destructive behavior. When living in the house became too much to bear, Lauren would explore the natural world outside his door. He grew up playing in nearby caves and creek banks. His half-brother, Leo, from his father's first marriage and 14 years older than Lauren, gave him a copy of Robinson Crusoe when he was five years old. This was how he taught himself to read. He started making his way to the public library and became a voracious reader. From Black Beauty, he became sensitized to animal suffering. For escape, there was Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon. Treasure Island took him to sea. And for fantasy, there was Tom Swift and his aerial warship. He attended Lincoln Public Schools, and in high school wrote that he wanted to be a nature writer. But he grew restless, and after his father died, he dropped out of school and worked at menial jobs. It would be 20 years before he could afford to purchase his father a gravestone. This left him with his mother, of whom he once said, My mother was a woman who invited murder. In 1927, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis and moved to the western desert, believing the drier air would improve his condition. While there, he was restless and unhappy, so he started to hobo around the country by hopping on freight trains, as many did during the Great Depression. As he himself put it, quote, all over America, men were drifting like sargasso weed in a vast dead sea of ruined industry. This is from All the Strange Hours by Lauren Isley, The Excavation of a Life. This is from the section called Days of a Drifter, Chapter 7, The Most Perfect Day in the World. It was the last of my drifting days, and if anyone were to ask what year it was, what month, what afternoon, I could not answer. I would be able to say only that it was, for me, the most perfect day in the world, and that is why I retain its memory, safely severed from time and reality. Every man must treasure such a day into which he can retreat when the years grow desperate. It's never the same for each. For some, it will be the memory of a woman, or a fading bar of music, or a successful night at a gambling table, leaving you with the momentary illusion that you have won the game of life. Also, the perfect day is apt to be so subjective that no one else who was with you will remember it in the same fashion, if he remembers it at all. It will be a day 
totally yours. That is the way I shall think of my own day. I cannot name my companions, if indeed I ever knew their names. I only remember that there were four of us. But out of all the towns and stations of those years, it was somewhere in Kansas in the wheat. Was it Norton? Was it... No, I think it must have been Phillipsburg. How we gathered there like the flocking autumn birds we were, I do not know. It was a chance meeting by a water tower and a loading platform in an utterly wasted day. The town was small enough not to bother us, and out of some trifle of change we bought grape pop made by a factory in that very town. We drank it slowly with gusto and accounted it great while we stretched in the shade beneath the water tank or lay dozing on the rough planks of the loading platform. I do not know whether we were headed west or east, or from what train we had dropped, or for what we waited. We were just there. Birds of passage with no past, no future, no desires. We stretched out in the perfection of youth and health, grimy with engine smoke, blackened by the suns of a thousand miles. We laughed and took our ease, and the world could wait for us. The world can always wait when one is young. It was not etiquette in those days to ask where a man came from or where he was going. Mostly he was going nowhere, no matter how far or how fast he traveled. What rode in his mind was his alone. He might be a thief, a gunman, or simply a man down on his luck. In the next 48 hours, he might fall under a train and die. Or over the horizon, the law might be waiting for that same luck to run out. No, there was no reason for any of us to hurry, but really that was not the point. On the rough boards where we talked and drowsed, it was safe. We sensed subconsciously, I think, that we were out of time, secret, hidden. It was early autumn, and the heat not oppressive. We drank the pop, bottle after bottle, like ambrosia, like forgetfulness. I had been riding the tender of a locomotive the night before. That, at least by straining, I can recall. And the youth with me had come creeping over the roof of the fast passenger to join me. When I had seen him starting to clamber down, I had sweated uneasily with fear. I was too big for that sort of acrobatics on a hurtling train. He was the only man I had ever seen with the grit and the agility literally to dance with death upstairs on a flying express. He was one of the most perfectly coordinated men I have ever known, and I suspect was a fine lightweight fighter. There was an Indian. Mexican, perhaps, would be a better word. But the thing was, he looked like someone who might have ridden with Geronimo, an utterly wild face that by some genetic twist had floated down from Ice Age times. He could have been one of Attila's men, or equally have drifted with the first hunters over the land bridge to America. Every flash of expression had an animal's intensity. He studied faces like a trapped beast about to lunge. Perhaps it was a way of surmounting the linguistic barrier. Uh, Esta bueno, I groped, passing the pop, which I knew it should have been tequila. I patted my stomach. Bueno, I emphasized. 
Ah, yeah, he nodded, showing white teeth for a moment. Ah, yeah, he repeated gratefully, and drained the bottle. I had the feeling that if we had decided to assault the local bank barehanded, he would have come along happily. Wherever he had appeared from, it was another time. That was another thing about the road. People were always appearing from some other century, entering and exiting, as it were, at will. You never knew whether your companions were from the past or the future. Since by common consent we had no real existence, we might as well have been teleported from the future as the past. But about that, it was certain that no one would talk either. The fourth man could have lived in any century and survived there. He was slight and brown and aquiline-nosed, a true aristocrat of the sort incised on Egyptian monuments. He should have been carrying a scroll of papyrus, but like the nimble-footed scurrier along roofs at midnight, he wore a pair of goggles high on his soot-streaked forehead. There were no diesels then. If you rode the flyers, you couldn't risk a cinder spark in your eye on a hurtling roof. It was touch-and-go at best. As for me, I dwelt nowhere but in the unformed, malleable present. Someone once said one should invent one's destiny. But if so, I was devoid of inspiration. I merely waited and observed, having none of the skills these others had acquired. I waited and admired them. I possessed, perhaps embodied, the shiftlessness of the times. Perhaps I knew it, perhaps I didn't care. I was introspective enough to welcome these men of differences, talents not my own, ethics of ages past or oncoming. I was merely lost, waiting to find a role for myself. Other youths in the world I had left had fathers who pointed the way. I had none. All I had was knowledge that the world was complex and dangerous. I was young. Someday something would happen to decide my course. Meanwhile, I lay in the sun in Kansas and drowsed. Part two of his autobiography is called Days of a Thinker. Lauren eventually returned to the University of Nebraska and received a B.A. in English and a B.S. in Geology Anthropology. While at university, he served as editor of the literary magazine, The Prairie Schooner, and published his poetry and some short stories. This poem from 1929 is called Nocturne for Autumn's Evening. Fireflies' green lanterns down this old green wall are going out. The moon is warped and red. Now in the midnight dew, the rabbit fed lopes homeward, and the frost begins to crawl on summer honey. Stealthy burglars fall upon the bees' blunt bulging barrels. Unheard, a cricket files his keys. It seems the word has gone about, this is the last of all. It is the time when things have ceased to strive, when worms creep downward in their narrow holes when hearts are northernmost, and if survive, must do so by themselves like furtive moles. The tang of bark and bitter roots, like sin, remain to comfort us now winter's in. He initially turned away from being a writer after he handed in his first assignment. The teacher told him bluntly, you didn't compose this, it's too well written. 
This experience put Isley off writing for pleasure. He said, I was far into middle age before I found a belated joy in professional literary studies. He went on expeditions to western Nebraska and the southwest to hunt for fossils and human artifacts for the school's natural history museum, Morrill Hall. He sent back the fossilized remains of mastodons, saber-toothed cats, and beavers the size of young steers. He later noted that he came to anthropology from paleontology, preferring to leave human burial sites undisturbed unless destruction threatened them. In 1933, Lauren Isley moved to Philadelphia for postgraduate studies, and he received his Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania in 1937. He wrote his dissertation entitled, Three Indices of Quaternary Time and Their Bearing Upon Prehistory, a Critique. His fiancée, Mabel Langdon, to whom he had become engaged prior to his Philadelphia move, now agreed to marry him. They had discussed before marriage that they would not have children. This launched his academic career. He began teaching at the University of Kansas that same year. During World War II, Isley taught anatomy to reservist pre-med students at Kansas. In 1944, he left the University of Kansas to assume the role of head of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Oberlin College in Ohio. By this time, he had no intention of undertaking any more extensive field work. He passed on a golden opportunity to join the anthropologist Louis Leakey in his hunt for human origins in Africa's fossil-rich Olduvai Gorge. His first book, published in 1946, was called The Immense Journey. It was a collection of writings about the history of humanity gathered from essays he had written for Harper's, Atlantic Monthly, and The American Scholar. Among the essays is one of his most anthologized, The Heart-Stoppingly Good, The Judgment of Birds. Find it online and read it. I would read it to you, but I can't get through it without my voice cracking several times. It's really that good. The Immense Journey was that rare science book that appealed to a mass audience. It has sold over a million copies. It's been published in at least 16 languages. Here is a portion of the chapter called The Bird and the Machine. I sat once on a high ridge that fell away before me into a waste of sand dunes. I sat through hours of a long afternoon. Finally, as I glanced beside my boot, an indistinct configuration caught my eye. It was a coiled rattlesnake, a big one. How long he had sat with me, I do not know. I had not frightened him. We were both locked in the sleepwalking tempo of the earlier world, baking in the same high air and sunshine. Perhaps he had been there when I came. He slept on as I left, his coils, so ill-discerned by me, dissolving once more among the stones and gravel from which I had barely made him out. It was a dim descent, but time was present in it. Somewhere far down in that scale, the notion struck me that one might come the other way. Not many months thereafter, I joined some colleagues heading higher into a remote windy tableland where huge bones were reputed to protrude like boulders from the turf. I drowsed with reptiles and moved with the century-long pulse of trees. 
Now, lethargically, I was climbing back up some invisible ladder of quickening hours. There had been talk of birds in connection with my duties. Birds are intense, fast-living creatures, reptiles, I suppose one might say, that have escaped out of the heavy sleep of time, transformed fairy creatures dancing over sunlit meadows. It is a youthful fancy, no doubt, but because of something that happened up there among the escarpments of that range, it remains with me a lifelong impression. I can never bear to see a bird imprisoned. We came into that valley through the trailing mists of a spring night. It was a place that looked as though it might never have known the foot of man. But our scouts had been ahead of us, and we knew all about the abandoned cabin of stone that lay far up on one hillside. It had been built in the land rush of the last century, and then lost to the cattlemen again as the marginal soils failed to take the plow. There were spots like this all over that country, lost graves marked by unlettered stones and old corroding rimfire cartridge cases lying where somebody had made a stand among the boulders that rimmed the valley. They are all that remain of the range wars. The men are under the stones now. I could see our cavalcade winding in and out through the mist below us, torches, the reflection of truck lights on our collecting tins, and the far-off bumping of a loose dinosaur thigh bone in the bottom of a trailer. I stood on a rock a moment, looking down, and thinking what it cost in money and equipment to capture the past. We had, in addition, instructions to lay hands on the present. The word had come through to get them alive, birds, reptiles, anything. A zoo somewhere abroad needed restocking. It was one of those reciprocal matters in which science involves itself. Maybe our museum needed a stray ostrich egg, and this was the payoff. Anyhow, my job was to help capture some birds, and that's why I was there before the trucks. The cabin had not been occupied for years. We intended to clean it out and live in it, but there were holes in the roof, and the birds had come in and were roosting in the rafters. You could depend on it in a place like this where everything blew away, and even a bird needed some place out of the weather and away from coyotes. A cabin going back to nature in a wild place draws them till they come in, listening at the eaves, I imagine, pecking softly among the shingles till they find a hole, and then suddenly the place is theirs, and man is forgotten. Sometimes of late years I find myself thinking the most beautiful sight in the world may be the birds taking over New York after the last man has run away to the hills. I will never live to see it, of course, but I know just how it will sound, because I've lived up high, and I know the sort of watch birds keep on us. I've listened to sparrows tapping tentatively on the outside of air conditioners when they thought no one was listening. And I know how other birds test the vibrations that come up to them through the television aerials. Is he gone? they ask, and the vibrations come up from below. Not yet, not yet. Well, to come back, I got the door open softly, and I had the spotlight all ready to turn on and blind whatever birds there were, so they couldn't see to get out through the roof. I had a short piece of ladder to put against the far wall, where there was a shelf on which I expected to make the biggest haul. 
I had all the information I needed, just like any skilled assassin. I pushed the door open, the hinges squeaking only a little. A bird or two stirred. I could hear them. But nothing flew, and there was a faint starlight through the holes in the roof. I padded across the floor, got the ladder up and the light ready, and slithered up the ladder till my head and arms were over the shelf. Everything was dark as pitch, except for the starlight at the little place back of the shelf near the eaves. With the light to blind them, they'd never make it. I had them. I reached my arm carefully over in order to be ready to seize whatever was there, and I put the flash on the edge of the shelf where it could stand by itself when I turned it on. That way I'd be able to use both hands. Everything worked perfectly except for one detail. I didn't know what kind of birds were there. I never thought about it at all, and it wouldn't have mattered if I had. My orders were to get something interesting. I snapped on the flesh, and sure enough, there was a great beating and feathers flying. But instead of my having them, they, or rather he, had me. He had my hand, that is, and for a small hawk, not much bigger than my fist, he was doing all right. I heard him give one short metallic cry when the light went on, and my hand descended on the bird beside him. After that, he was busy with his claws, and his beak was sunk into my thumb. In the struggle, I knocked the lamp over on the shelf, and his mate got her sight back and whisked neatly through the hole in the roof and off among the stars outside. It had all happened in 15 seconds, and you might think I would have fallen down the ladder. But no, I had a professional assassin's reputation to keep up. And the bird, of course, made the mistake of thinking the hand was the enemy and not the eyes behind it. He chewed my thumb up pretty effectively and lacerated my hand with his claws. But in the end, I got him, having two hands to work with. He was a sparrowhawk and a fine young male in the prime of life. I was sorry not to catch the pair of them, but as I dripped blood and folded his wings carefully, holding him by the back so that he couldn't strike again, I had to admit the two of them might have been more than I could have handled under the circumstances. The little fellow had saved his mate by diverting me, and that was that. He was born to it and made no outcry now, resting in my hand hopelessly, but peering toward me in the shadows behind the lamp with a fierce, almost indifferent glance. He neither gave nor expected mercy, and something out of the high air passed from him to me, stirring a faint embarrassment. I quit looking into that eye and managed to get my huge carcass with its fistful of prey back down the ladder. I put the bird in a box too small to allow him to injure himself by struggle and walked out to welcome the arriving trucks. It had been a long day and camp still to make in the darkness. In the morning, that bird would be just another episode. He would go back with the bones in the truck to a small cage in a city where he would spend the rest of his life. And a good thing, too. I sucked my aching thumb and spat out some blood. An assassin has to get used to these things. I had a professional reputation to keep up. In the morning, with the change that comes on suddenly in that high country, the mist that had hovered below us in the valley was gone. The sky was a deep blue, and one could see for miles over the high outcroppings of stone. 
I was up early and brought the box in which the little hawk was imprisoned out into the grass where I was building a cage. A wind as cool as a mountain spring ran over the grass and stirred my hair. It was a fine day to be alive. I looked up and all around and at the hole in the cabin roof out of which the other little hawk had fled. There was no sign of her anywhere that I could see. Probably in the next county by now, I thought cynically. But before beginning work, I decided to have a look at my last night's capture. Secretively, I looked again all around the camp and up and down and opened the box. I got him right out in my hand with his wings folded properly, and I was careful not to startle him. He lay limp in my grasp, and I could feel his heart pound under the feathers, but he only looked beyond me and up. I saw him look that last look away beyond me into a sky so full of light that I could not follow his gaze. The little breeze flowed over me again, and nearby a mountain aspen shook all its tiny leaves. I suppose I must have had an idea then of what I was going to do, but I never let it come up into consciousness. I just reached over and laid the hawk on the grass. He lay there for a long minute, without hope, unmoving, his eyes still fixed on that blue vault above him. It must have been that he was already so far away in heart that he never felt the release from my hand. He never even stood. He just lay with his breast against the grass. In the next second after that long minute, he was gone. Like a flicker of light, he had vanished with my eyes full on him, and without actually seeing even a premonitory wing beat, he was gone straight into that towering emptiness of light and crystal that my eyes could scarcely bear to penetrate. For another long moment, there was silence. I could not see him. The light was too intense. Then, from far up somewhere... A cry came ringing down. I was young then, and had seen little of the world, but when I heard that cry, my heart turned over. It was not the cry of the hawk I had captured, for by shifting my position against the sun, I was now seeing further up. Straight out of the sun's eye, where she must have been soaring restlessly above us for untold hours, hurtled his mate. And from far up, ringing from peak to peak of the summits over us, came a cry of such unutterable and ecstatic joy that it sounds down across the years and tingles among the cups on my quiet breakfast table. I saw them both now. He was rising fast to meet her. They met in a great soaring gyre that turned to a whirling circle at a dance of wings. Once more just once, their two voices, joined in a harsh, wild medley of question and response, struck and echoed against the pinnacles of that valley. Then they were gone forever, somewhere into those upper regions beyond the eyes of men. I am older now, and sleep less, and have seen most of what there is to see, and am not very much impressed anymore. I suppose by anything. What next in the attributes of machines, my morning headline runs? It might be the power to reproduce themselves. I lay the paper down, and across my mind a phrase floats insinuatingly. 
it does not seem that there is anything in the construction, constituents, or behavior of the human being which it is essentially impossible for science to duplicate and synthesize. On the other hand, all over the city, the cogs in the hard, bright mechanisms have begun to turn. Figures move through computers, names are spelled out, a thoughtful machine selects the fingerprints of a wanted criminal from an array of thousands. In the laboratory, an electronic mouse runs swiftly through a maze towards the cheese it can neither taste nor enjoy. On the second run, it does better than a living mouse. On the other hand, ah, my mind wakes up. On the other hand, the machine does not bleed, ache, hang for hours in the empty sky in a torment of hope to learn the fate of another machine. Nor does it cry out with joy or dance in the air with the fierce passion of a bird. Far off, over a distance greater than space, that remote cry from the heart of heaven makes a faint buzzing among my breakfast dishes and passes on and away. Part three of his autobiography is called Days of a Doubter. Lauren Isley starts the third part of his autobiography by saying, A biography is always constructed from ruins, but as any archaeologist will tell you, there is never the means to unearth all the rooms, or follow the buried roads, or dig into every cistern for treasure. You try to see what the ruin meant to whoever inhabited it, and if you are lucky, you see a little way backward into time. In 1947, he returned to the University of Pennsylvania to head its anthropology department. He was elected president of the American Institute of Human Paleontology in 1949. From 1959 to 61, he was provost at the University of Pennsylvania. The job took up his time, and he stopped writing. He was ready to leave this position when, in 1961, the University of Pennsylvania created a special interdisciplinary professorial chair for him, the Benjamin Franklin Professorship. This allowed him to resume writing. His books continued to be praised and sell well. His humanitarianism took a sharp turn to the right in his last years. He wrote to President Richard Nixon, pleading with him not to lose his resolve in the face of massive protests against the Vietnam War. Quote, many people, particularly the young, are the more or less innocent dupes of unseen elements making use of the mass media for purposes of propaganda. When he heard about four students being killed by the National Guard at Kent State University, he was overheard to say they got what they deserved. The third thing I am going to read for you is an essay from The Star Thrower, published the year after his death. When science fiction author Ray Bradbury read it, he wrote, The book will be read and cherished in the year 2001. It will go to the moon and Mars with future generations. Lauren Isley's work changed my life. The Star Thrower by Lauren Isley. Who is the man walking in the way, an eye glaring in the skull? Secco. 
It has never been my lot, though formerly myself a teacher, to be taught surely by none. There are times when I have thought to read lessons in the sky, or in books, or from the behavior of my fellows. But in the end, my perceptions have frequently been inadequate or betrayed. Nevertheless, I venture to say that of what man may be, I have caught a fugitive glimpse, not among multitudes of men, but along an endless wave-beaten coast at dawn. As always, there is this apparent break, this rift in nature, before the insight comes. The terrible question has to translate itself into an even more terrifying freedom. If there is any meaning to this book, it began on the beaches of Custabel, with just such a leap across an unknown abyss. It began, if I may borrow the expression from a Buddhist sage, with the skull and the eye. I was the skull. I was the inhumanly stripped skeleton without voice, without hope, wandering alone upon the shores of the world. I was devoid of pity because pity implies hope. There was in this desiccated skull only an eye like a pharaoh's light, a beacon, a search beam revolving endlessly in sunless noonday or black night. Ideas like swarms of insects rose to the beam, but the light consumed them. Upon that shore, meaning had ceased. There were only the dead skull and the revolving eye. With such an eye, some have said, science looks upon the world. I do not know. I know only that I was the skull of emptiness and the endlessly revolving light without pity. Once in a dingy restaurant in the town, I had heard a woman say, My father reads a goose bone for the weather. A modern primitive, I had thought, a diviner, using a method older than Stonehenge, as old as the Arctic forests. And where does he do that? the woman's companion had asked amusedly. In Costabel, she answered complacently, in Costabel. The voice came back and buzzed faintly for a moment in the dark under the revolving eye. It did not make sense, but nothing in Costabel made sense. Perhaps that was why I had finally found myself in Costabel. Perhaps all men are destined at some time to arrive there as I did. I had come by quite ordinary means, but I was still the skull with the eye. I concealed myself beneath a fisherman's cap and sunglasses so that I looked like everyone else on the beach. This is the way things are managed in Costabel. It is on the shore that the revolving eye begins its beam, and the whispers rise in the empty darkness of the skull. The beaches of Costabel are littered with the debris of life. Shells are cast up in windrows. A hermit crab, fumbling for a new home in the depths, is tossed naked ashore where the waiting gulls cut him to pieces. Along the strip of wet sand that marks the ebbing and flowing of the tide, death walks hugely and in many forms. Even the torn fragments of green sponge yield bits of scrambling life, striving to return to the great mother that has nourished and protected them. In the end, the sea rejects its offspring. They cannot fight their way home through the surf, which casts them repeatedly back on the shore. 
The tiny breathing pores of starfish are stuffed with sand. The rising sun shrivels the mucilaginous bodies of the unprotected. The sea beach and its endless war are soundless. Nothing screams but the gulls. In the night, particularly in the tourist season or during great storms, one can observe another vulturine activity. One can see, in the hour before dawn on the ebb tide, electric torches bobbing like fireflies along the beach. It is the sign of the professional shellers seeking to outrun and anticipate their less aggressive neighbors. A kind of greedy madness sweeps over the competing collectors. After a storm, one can see them hurrying along with bundles of gathered starfish or toppling and overburdened clutching bags of living shells whose hidden occupants will be slowly cooked and dissolved in the outdoor kettles provided by the resort hotels for the cleaning of specimens. Following one such episode, I met the star thrower. As soon as the ebb was flowing, as soon as I could make out in my sleeplessness the flashlights on the beach, I arose and dressed in the dark. As I came down the steps to the shore, I could hear the deeper rumble of the surf. A gaping hole filled with churning sand had cut sharply into the breakwater. Flying sand as light as powder coated every exposed object like snow. I made my way around the altered edges of the cove and proceeded on my morning walk up the shore. Now and then a stooping figure moved in the gloom, or a rain squall swept past me with light pattering steps. There was a faint sense of coming light somewhere behind me in the east. Soon I began to make out objects, upended timbers, conch shells, sea rack wrenched from the far-out kelp forests. A pink-clawed crab encased in a green cup of sponge lay sprawling where the waves had tossed him. Long-limbed starfish were strewn everywhere, as though the night sky had showered down. I paused once, briefly. A small octopus, its beautiful dark-lensed eyes bleared with sand, gazed up at me from a ragged bundle of tentacles. I hesitated and touched it briefly with my foot. It was dead. I paced on once more before the spreading white caps of the surf. The shore grew steeper, the sound of the sea heavier and more menacing, as I rounded a bluff into the full blast of the offshore wind. I was away from the shellers now, and strode more rapidly over the wet sand that effaced my footprints. Around the next point there might be a refuge from the wind. The sun behind me was pressing upward at the horizon's rim, an ominous red glare amidst the tumbling blackness of the clouds. Ahead of me, over the projecting point, a gigantic rainbow of incredible perfection had sprung shimmering into existence, and somewhere toward its foot I discerned a human figure standing, as it seemed to me, within the rainbow, though unconscious of his position. He was gazing fixedly at something in the sand. Eventually he stooped and flung the object beyond the breaking surf. I labored toward him over a half mile of uncertain footing. By the time I reached him, the rainbow had receded ahead of us, but something of its color still ran hastily in many changing lights around his features. He was starting to kneel again. 
In a pool of sand and silt, a starfish had thrust its arms up stiffly and was holding its body away from the stifling mud. "'It's still alive,' I ventured. "'Yes,' he said, and with a quick yet gentle movement, he picked up the star and spun it over my head and far out into the sea. It sank in a burst of spume, and the waters roared once more.' It may live, he said, if the offshore pole is strong enough. He spoke gently, and across his bronzed, worn face, the light still came and went in subtly altering colors. There are not many come this far, I said, groping in a sudden embarrassment for words. Do you collect? Only like this, he said softly, gesturing amidst the wreckage of the shore, and only for the living. He stooped again, oblivious of my curiosity, and skipped another star neatly across the water. The stars, he said, throw well, and one can help them. He looked full at me, with a faint question kindling in his eyes, which seemed to take on the far depths of the sea. I do not collect, I said uncomfortably, the wind beating at my garments, neither living nor the dead. I gave it up a long time ago. Death is the only successful collector. I could feel the full night blackness in my skull and the terrible eye resuming its indifferent journey. I nodded and walked away, leaving him there upon the dune with that great rainbow ranging up in the sky behind him. I turned as I neared a bend in the coast and saw him toss another star, skimming it skillfully far out over the ravening and tumultuous water. For a moment, in the changing light, the sower appeared magnified, as though casting larger stars upon some greater sea. He had, at any rate, the posture of a god. But again, the eye, the cold, world-shriveling eye, began its inevitable circling in my skull. He is a man, I considered sharply, bringing my thought to rest. The star-thrower is a man, and death is running more fleet than he along every sea beach in the world. I adjusted the dark lenses of my glasses, and thus disguised, I paced slowly back by the starfish gatherers, past the shell collectors with their vulgar little spades, and the stick-length shelling pincers that eased their elderly backs while they snatched at treasures in the sand. I chose to look full at the steaming kettles, in which beautiful, voiceless things were being boiled alive." Behind my sunglasses, a kind of litany began and refused to lie down. As I came through the desert, thus it was as I came through the desert. In the darkness of my room, I lay quiet with the sunglasses removed, but the eye turned and turned. In the desert, an old monk had once advised a traveler, the voices of God and the devil are scarcely distinguishable. Costabel was a desert. I lay quiet, but my restless hand at the bedside fingered the edge of an invisible abyss. Certain coasts, the remark of a perceptive writer came back to me, are set apart for shipwreck. With unerring persistence, I had made my way thither. In Days of a Doubter, Lauren Isley summarizes his philosophy as life as such. In the world, there is nothing to explain the world. 
nothing to explain the necessity of life, nothing to explain the hunger of the elements to become life, nothing to explain why the stolid realm of rock and soil and mineral should diversify itself into beauty, terror, or uncertainty. To bring organic novelty into existence, to create pain, injustice, joy, demands more than we can discern in the nature that we analyze so completely. Lauren Corey Isley was 69 when he died. He was laid to rest at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the West Lawn section, Lot 366. Mabel outlived him by nine years. Their stone is rather simple, but the inscription is perfect. We loved the earth, but could not stay. Become a star thrower in his memory. Remember that the next edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the last Friday of May. It's called In Heaven There Is No Beer. It will tell of the brewing history of Philadelphia and some of the many pre-prohibition brewers who populated the city and who now populate Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill edition number 9 in mid-June, will be about Helen Thompson Woolley, a towering giant in the early days of developmental psychology. Ironically, it was a psychological breakdown that led to her name and her work mostly being forgotten nearly a hundred years after her successes. Remember to become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. You will get discounts on tours and in the gift shop, at least two members-only bonus podcasts this year, one of them is already recorded, and special tours that include visits inside some mausoleums at West Laurel Hill. If you are listening during the week after this podcast was released, you are in luck. The Market of the Macabre is at Laurel Hill Cemetery on Saturday, May 21st from noon until 5 p.m. There will be dozens of merchants and craftspeople selling their wares, live music appropriate to the occasion, and some mini tours of the cemetery. I will be there checking people in and giving a mini tour, so stop by and say hi. I'll be wearing my 25th Infantry Division baseball cap. Other upcoming events, Laurel Hill Hotspots Tours on Thursday, May 19th from 10 till noon and Friday, May 27th also from 10 until noon. There's a general tour at West Laurel Hill on Saturday, May 28th from 10 to 11.30 and a special Memorial Day ceremony at Laurel Hill on Sunday, May 29th at noon with Civil War and Victorian reenactors, a 21-gun salute, refreshments, and dedication of new grave markers for military veterans. June is busy, busy, busy. Hot Spots tours on Saturday the 11th, Thursday the 16th. I am tour guide for this one on Thursday the 16th at 10 a.m. And Friday the 24th. And an accessible Hot Spots tour for visitors with limited mobility on Sunday, June 5th at 1 p.m. There are four Count them, 
four themed tours at Laurel Hill in June. Saturday, June 4th at 1 p.m. They never saw it coming. Folks who suffered sudden deaths. That comes from Rich Boardman. Saturday, June 11th, What a Piece of Work is Man, the Shakespeare Tour. That's from Patty and Tom Stringers. There's a new tour called Out of the Closet and Into the Crypt, Queer Stories of Laurel Hill from Pat Rose. And the annual Juneteenth Tour this year is on June 19th at 1 p.m. to set them free, an abolitionism walking tour of Laurel Hill from the one and only Russ Dodge. Also to celebrate Juneteenth, come two days earlier on Friday the 17th at 8 p.m. for the Cinema in the Cemetery series and the classic movie Glory, now nearly a third of a century old, believe it or not. So you can see a much younger Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Broderick, Carrie Elways, and many others. And there are two concerts, the Divine Hand Ensemble, on Saturday, June 4th, from 6 to 9 p.m., and the Goth Americana group, the Bailey Hounds, will give a concert on Saturday, June 11th, with the gates opening at 6.30 p.m. Tickets for all of these events are available from our website, thelaurelhillcemetery.org slash events. I am Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide and volunteer podcaster for both cemeteries. Maybe I'll see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The bibliography is coming up next. Lots of resources for this. Lauren Isley's Substitution by Bert Carr, that's K-A-H-R, from Substantia, Volume 5, Number 1, 2021, pages 79 to 89. Barbed Wire and Brown Skulls by Lauren Isley, from Lauren Isley, Collected Essays on Evolution, Nature, and the Cosmos, Volume 2, Library of America, 2016, pages 181 to 192. The Judgment of the Birds by Lauren Isley, the American Scholar, Spring 1956, Volume 25, Number 2, pages 151 to 161. Lauren Isley, 1907-1977 by Howard Nemeroff, Prairie Schooner, University of Nebraska Press, Volume 61, Number 3, Fall 1987, pages 4 through 8. And The Masks of Lauren Isley by his biographer, Gail E. Christensen. That's from the journal biography, Fall 1990, Volume 13, Number 4, pages 316 to 327. Also, many, many newspaper obituaries and the essential All the Strange Hours, The Excavation of a Life by Lauren Isley. That's from Bison Books, University of Nebraska Press, Lincoln, Copyright 1975. Stay safe, stay well.